Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. Every single Monday, you and I sit down with someone great to have a great conversation. I guess you're not sitting. You might be sitting, you might be laying, you might be standing. I don't know how you listen to the show, but I'm glad to have you here. Either way, don't forget, you get extended editions of every single one of these episodes by joining Mark Claire Show Premium. You can do that on Rockfin, Patreon, Subscribestar. Find all those links over at markclaire.com. Today, we're going to be looking at a little dangerous history when it surrounds the JFK assassination with a great guest, CJ Kilmer of the Dangerous History Podcast. Before we get to him, I got to remind you about our incredible sponsors. You might even call them fantastic. The fantastic Mr. Fox and his company, Fox and Sons Coffee, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. What I want you to do, if you have not tried this coffee yet, what's wrong with you? You see how fresh I look? You see how awake I look? You see how much pizzazz I got? That's because I had some great Fox and Sons. Den Blend Dark is my bean of choice, but there are a great variety of beans there. There's a Mexican honey prep coming soon that I'm really interested in. There's a lot going on at Fox and Sons. I can't even scratch the surface here. You just got to go see it yourself. If you're a coffee lover, you got to head over to foxandsons.com and you got to use your discount code MCS. Gets you 18% off your order, any order over 25 bucks. So head over to foxandsons.com, support a great sponsor of this show, get yourself some great coffee. It's a win-win, my friends. With that being said, it is now time for my discussion with CJ Kilmer. Welcome back, friends. My guest today is the host of the Dangerous History Podcast, where he is dedicated to sharing the history that the establishment would rather you not know. I'm very pleased to welcome CJ Kilmer. CJ, welcome to my show. Hey, Mark. Good to talk to you again. Been well. For sure. And I, I forgot to mention in the intro there, perhaps the most important part, you are a fellow Florida man. So that's always good to, good to have. Yeah, yeah. Glad to have you here as a reinforcements. Um, I've been here for almost... Uh, 42 years minus two years when I was in graduate school in another state. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that you escaped the the woke North Korea, uh, formerly known as California. <laughs> yes, I, I got out under the front lines. But um, you know, CJ, when we last spoke, I interviewed you a number of years ago, a couple of times uh, back on Lions Liberty. At that time, you were still uh, a professor of history, I believe, while still while doing the Dangerous History podcast on the side. You have since, well, we'll say made the transition, maybe still making the transition in some ways as we all are, but maybe you can dive into a little bit of like first of your background, just how you first got onto the idea of uh, not just history, but the fact there might be more to history than a lot of, a lot of what you were taught growing up. Uh, but how did you actually, you know, take that and make this transition, uh, you know, to do this full time, so to speak? Okay, so I'll try to give the the Cliff Notes version of kind of my origin story. Um, so, born and raised a Florida man, and um, always was kind of uh, a smartass and and somebody who always questioned everything and always questioned authority figures and always kind of suspected that a lot of the things that we think we know are just sort of like a, a superficial surface that if you dig deeper, you realize things are not at all what you see. I didn't have the words yet to to call it Plato's Cave or anything like that, but I think that's what I was already sort of trying to uh, figure out since I was a kid. And um, I eventually went to college, and um, you know, by the time I went to college, I was probably some kind of like a a conservatarian maybe like that, you know, basically like uh, a conservative who had some skepticism about at least some of the wars and had skepticism about some other things that conservatives normally just go along with, like uh, the police state, the war on drugs, um, those sorts of things. But, you know, wasn't really a, a radical libertarian yet. So, you know, I'd read 
some Hayek and some Friedman and that sort of stuff, you know. And um, I went to college. I kind of had my misgivings and, and doubts about that, but I had decent grades and very good test scores. So people were kind of like, well, you need to go to college. So I was like, all right. Um, and I happened to be interested just intrinsically in history in part because, you know, I went to public school for my whole K through 12 thing. And uh, like most people, most of my teachers were at best mediocre uh, at worst, downright awful. I mean, I had some where I was pretty sure I knew a lot more about the topic than they did. And um, it just so happened that two of the best teachers I had in my entire K through 12 uh, were um, history teachers and really made me interested in the subject. And so I decided, okay, I'll go and get a history degree. So I got a history bachelor's degree and that's kind of you know, it uh, means you can stock shelves or serve coffee at Starbucks while, you know, occasionally referring to Napoleon or something like that. Um, so I went to graduate school. <laughs> this reminds me of the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I can make random references. Yeah, just clean up the four, please. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went, to, went on to graduate school and, um, you know, this, this is all in, in the 2000s that I was going to, to school. And my intent was to go on to a PhD. I made it through a master's degree. And then for various reasons, some of them, uh, just kind of personal family stuff going on, and some of it just that I was getting already disillusioned with academia. Um, I decided to, to quit uh, graduate school after a master's, even though I was already kind of like preemptively um, accepted into the PhD program at the school I was in. But you know, I, I needed to go to work and I needed, to, and, I, and I needed a break from, from graduate school. It was, it was not a good environment in a lot of ways. And so, um, one of the few things that you can do these days, I wanted to teach. I enjoyed teaching and I still do. Um, like actually, you know, telling people stories and helping people to understand things. I still enjoy that very much. Um, and so I was like, all right, you know, I want to, I want to teach. I don't want to teach in high school or something like that. Um, I, I, I knew that wasn't my cup of tea. Um, but I thought, you know, if I could find a way to teach college. Now, um, academia, for those who don't know, is very, very rigid about credentialism. Like there's no wiggle room at all. Um, a lot of jobs in the private sector, there is some wiggle room where, you know, they'll say like, oh yeah, we, we want you to have these qualifications or whatever, but if you can demonstrate that you can do a particular job, very often they'll, they'll be able to kind of waive things a little a little bit, or at least, you know, give you uh, some time to get the credential while you're still already working. But in academia, it's like a Hindu caste system as far as rigidity goes. <laughs> and most colleges and universities simply won't even look at your, your application. If you're applying for a full-time teaching job and you don't have a PhD, they, they won't even look at it. Uh, so, but I found out that um, the, the kind of smaller colleges, what used to be called community or junior colleges, that those will sometimes hire full-time people with just a master's and no PhD. Uh, so eventually I got a job uh, teaching full-time at uh, what used to be a community college. Now it's called a state college. And um, I, I taught there for 15 years. I had taught for a year previously as an adjunct at two uh, private uh, universities. So taught college history combined together for 16 years. And um, about nine years ago, I started my podcast um, oh, and in the meantime, I had become a much more radical libertarian. It was sort of a combination of um, my, my primary field of studying graduate school was the British Empire, actually. My secondary field was American history. And so I was studying the British Empire and, and what it really was and how it really operated. And at the same time, simultaneously, I'm watching the news and I'm watching the dumpster fire that was the Bush administration's, the George W. Bush administration's foreign policy just you know, get 
worse and worse um, results every year, you know, with the invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other stuff. And so I finally put together something that to me now seems obvious in hindsight, and I feel like an idiot for not figuring out, uh, but figuring out sooner, but most Americans never seem to figure out, which is uh, the United States is an empire. You know, the, the United States government is an imperial government. Uh, not only is it an imperial government, but it actually always has been. It's just most people don't see it for what it is. Um, so, you know, I was watching the Bush regime's foreign policy. Simultaneously, I was studying the British imperial foreign policy from like a century plus earlier. And I was putting two and two together going, oh, these, this is the same thing. You know, this is the same thing um, with, a, with a different accent, basically. And so um, around that time, the, the first Ron Paul, you know, presidential run in 07, 08 happened. And I was very, um, I, I was very receptive to what he was saying. It was kind of perfect timing for me. Uh, and from the Ron Paul campaign and a lot of the, you know, the Mises Institute and a lot of the other sorts of individuals and institutions that were behind the Ron Paul campaign, um, through that I discovered more radical stuff like Rothbard, people like that. And, um, more radical revisionist takes on history. And I started to look at American history with a whole new, you know, set of set of glasses on and actually see it for what it is in a lot of ways. And um, so anyway, fast forward um, in 2014, I started the Dangerous History podcast, my show, as a sort of like initially an experiment slash hobby. I had no background in anything. I had a background in history and I had a background in telling people history stories for a living. But I had no no background in anything like broadcast, tech, anything like that. I was actually a pretty Luddite guy, still kind of am. Um, prior to 2014 and starting my podcast, I didn't own a smartphone yet. And I had wow. zero social media as of 2014 until I started my show. It was only when I started a podcast that I said, oh, I guess I better, I better get a Twitter and a Facebook. Crap, now I got to promote this thing now? Yeah, it's the, it's the worst once you realize all the... 10 other things you have to do because you started a podcast. Yeah, yeah. And I'm still, I'm, I'm not by nature a tech guy. It is kind of, when, the technical things I have to do for my show are always kind of uh, some of the hardest stuff for me. You know, if it was up to me, everything would still be analog and pen and paper and whatever. But, mm -hmm. you know, I kept going with it. And, uh, you know, for a while, I was lucky to get 100 downloads of an episode or whatever, because I wasn't someone coming to this with any kind of a public following or whatever. You know, I was an obscure community college teacher. And, um, but gradually it started to grow. Eventually I started to get on, you know, some larger shows that gave me more exposure and, and build a, a bit of a cult following. And, um, fast forward after eight years of doing the show, um, I finally got to a point where I just, you know, the, all the COVID insanity, th there were growing things that I was dissatisfied with about my job and about academia in general. And, and trends that started to get a little bit worse kind of every year. And then the COVID era like kicked all of those negative things into overdrive and really, really mm. made me miserable. I mean, I, I, I got... 2019, I was probably in the best state of mental health of my entire adult life. By 2021, I was in probably the worst state of mental health in my entire life. And it just continued. Um, I, I tend to be prone to depression and, and all of the COVID and related stuff happening during kind of 2020 to 2022 um, made me super depressed, super depressed. And, um, you know, eventually I even developed a drinking problem, which I really didn't have before 2020. And um, 
finally out of in the summer of 22 out of out of desperation i was the thought of going back to to teaching at the college you know made me so like preemptively more depressed and just you know i i, I thought it was just going to absolutely break me and so i finally kind of out of desperation i set up an indiegogo campaign um to raise some money so that i could at least have a little bit of a buffer um, to potentially quit my job and um, try to try to go solo, and the Indigo campaign was a success. I resigned from my job roughly a year ago from right now, and uh, since then, the Dangerous History podcast has been my main gig. I've been doing some other various kind of freelance and part-time things on the side, um, and I'm still struggling to make ends meet, to be brutally honest. But um, you know, tr- trying to figure things out as I go. But yeah, Dangerous History podcast—that's my baby. I, I can relate to a lot of that story, and you know, but we're going to get into our, our topic at hand in, in a minute. But what you talked about there, I think a lot of people went through something similar with the COVID stuff, uh, really in the fact that I think you could be in a situation like at a company, like I was, a uh, university, whatever it may be, where, yeah, there's some like maybe stuff you don't like, some political stuff here and there, some, you know, but it's like, whatever, I'm kind of used to it by now. It's not, it doesn't affect my entire day. And you just kind of roll your eyes at it show up to work and move on. But all of that stuff during those years, it got amplified to a thousand, not just the the COVID-related stuff, but everything surrounding the political implications of that. So I think a lot of people broke in these periods and I'll just pass along to you. Like your the your timeline is is still you're supposed to be struggling. So and I'm still struggling a little bit too from my similar decisions. Um but it's a process and I still think you're gonna be you know much better off in the long run, especially when it comes to your mental health. Because when you're when you're physically ill going somewhere, your body is shouting and screaming at you, just stop. So if you didn't make this decision, you'd probably be worse off uh, physically for sure and mentally for sure, even if maybe a better, a little bit financially, but in the long run, what does that matter if, uh, you know, if you can't hold up? Yeah, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, it might take another year or two or whatever to really kind of uh, get my legs under me with this whole thing. Um, I don't know if I would have quit when I did. Maybe I would have given it another year if I had realized just the depths of my mental health uh, damage at the time. Um, I, I, I was a little bit more, um, you know, not 100% in denial, but I was at least partially in denial about just how bad it was. And so it probably was kind of dumb for me to quit the steady nine to five before I had my mental health in order. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like, I don't know, if I hadn't quit when I did, I, I might have had like no chance to get my mental health somewhat in order Um, I I will say, you know, good news in just a few days, I'll be celebrating six months sober. So, you know, I'm in in pretty, thank you. I'm in pretty good recovery from the alcohol problem. I'm not quite as far along the way, um, on the depression problem, but I am making progress. I've I've got a lot of good people, um, helping me out and, you know, I'm really trying to figure things out there. And that's kind of like my last, if I could get that under a little bit better control, um, going forward, I know that that'll help me to be a lot more, um, productive in working on the podcast and stuff related to that. Well, you keep spending days like we were talking about before the show, you know, doing yard work in this 100-degree Florida heat. I mean, your, your body's not going to even have time to, to have mental you know, mental thought, you know. You're going to get it all out that way. But uh, we, yeah. I don't think there's any smooth transition into, from there into the topic that we're going to talk about today. But I did bring you on today because I've been wanting to do uh, an episode about what 
I, I, in many ways could be considered the original modern conspiracy or, uh, and that would be the assassination of JFK. We just so happen to be a few months away, but we're in the year of what will be the quick math 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, so I guess we'll just start to where, well, first of all, I want to, from the dangerous history perspective, anyway, from the from the perspective you usually take, um, trying to show a different perspective than the establishment puts out there, what do you think the the things we need to know the most about John F. Kennedy going into this are before we get into the assassination itself? Just from the da- dangerous history perspective, from like the way you you approach history. Okay, yeah. So um, I'm always skeptical of everything, uh, particularly individuals and institutions that have a lot of power. Um, I always, my default setting is to be skeptical of anything that kind of the mainstream media and academia and, and things like that um, have to say about things. I mean, they're, they're occasionally right and telling the truth, but most of the time they're either wrong or they're outright lying or, you know, some mixture thereof. Or they report the truth in a, in a certain manner for a certain perspective. So maybe the fact is true, but the way they're showing it to you is, you know, manipulated. Yeah, yeah. I like how Michael Malice puts it where he says, um, speaking of the mainstream media, that they're often very good at being factual but not being truthful, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of the most effective ways, another, you know, kind of area of expertise, I suppose, that I have is propaganda, modern propaganda methodologies and the history of it and, you know, how it works and um, some of the most effective ways to lie, or at least to manipulate people, is to use um, facts, things that are, you know, particular data points that are objectively true, so that if somebody does, you know, try to do their own little Googling, fact-checking, whatever, and that's a whole other, you know, how those things manipulate your searches, but um, setting that aside, you know, it, very often, most of the things they're telling you are not incorrect on a superficial factual level but they they use a combination of cherry picking and lying by omission which are sort of two sides of the same coin where they'll tell you a bunch of facts and most of them might actually be true and so if you just kind of google those little little superficial facts you go oh they're telling me the truth they're not lying to me but um very often you know they're they're cherry picking and only sharing with you the facts that support the narrative they're trying to inculcate into you and very often they are, the things they're telling you might be all or at least mostly factually true, but they're, they're very strategically leaving out other facts directly relevant to the issue that would drastically change the way you look at the whole you know, question, whatever it is, whether it's a recent you know, kind of current political thing going on or something historical. So um, with, with JFK... Um, another thing that I, that I try to do in my approach to history is to not feel like I have to, um, fall victim to, to kind of false dichotomies, let's say. And so just because you find out that someone you thought maybe was a bad guy wasn't as bad as they say doesn't necessarily mean it's a good guy just because, you know, that sort of thing where people, people oftentimes want to just flip to one from one thing to another. So for example, um, with, with the civil war, which I know is one of the things we talked about many years ago when I was covering that on my podcast, um, a lot of people, once they start to find out some of the kind of hidden truths about the Lincoln administration and why he really went to war against the South and why he wouldn't let them secede peacefully, all these sorts of things. Um, 
they start to find a lot of these, you know, facts that are often left out about that stuff. And they realize that the Civil War isn't what they were told. And so very often people in that situation feel almost like obligated or they instinctively become like Confederate apologists. Mm-hmm. where right. it's like, okay, I found out that Lincoln isn't exactly who we thought he was. His reasons for going to war weren't exactly what we were told. He's not this great humanitarian in a lot of ways. Therefore, the Confederates must be the good guys. And when I was covering the Civil War, my my view was like, well, no, I'm, I think, you know, Lincoln was was in many ways very bad. And um, the standard narrative of him and the Union war effort is all kinds of manipulated that doesn't necessarily mean the Confederates are good guys. History always wants to show us, at least like mainstream narrative hist- narratives of history always want to show us a very clear good guy and a bad guy. But the reality of, of it is a lot of times there's just a bunch of bad guys, especially when it comes to wars. Exactly, exactly. And and that's, you know, the vast majority of wars, I believe, are not between a good guy and a bad guy. They're between like, you know, different bad guys. And maybe one you could argue is like marginally a, a bit worse than the other in some ways. But you know, it's just like the, it's the same thing with the Ukraine war right now, where, you know, I don't think the United States should have any involvement in that whatsoever. I don't think NATO should exist. I don't think it's any, any business of the U.S. government or the American people who rules, you know, the Donbass or whatever. Um, but I'm also not going to be one of those people that's out there who's like actively pro-Putin and, you know, a Putin apologist. Like, no, I'm, I'm sure Putin's, you know, a horrible guy. After all, he's the head of a state. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure he, he's, you know, got all kinds of bad things that he does and whatever. I don't doubt that one minute, but that doesn't mean that therefore I have to mindlessly support, you know, what the CIA wants me to believe. And so with Kennedy, I think there's some of that too. And, you know, I don't think Kennedy is like horrible as, as a person or a politician, but I do think that some of the Kennedy assassination revisionist people go a little bit too far in making him into more of a hero than he was. Now, don't get me wrong. I think some of the things that he did were heroic and did take guts. And um, I think those are, those are a lot of the things that essentially got him killed. But, you know, just because I think, Ken, I think Kennedy was doing the right thing against the, the wishes of the CIA and the Pentagon and others, doesn't mean I have to think he was a great guy across the board. Doesn't mean I have to agree with him on everything politically. Um, you know, it's sort of similar to how I feel about Robert Kennedy Jr.'s um, candidacy right now. Like, plenty of stuff I don't agree with him on. Um, I'm not going to pretend that that I, I I think he's the greatest guy ever, but at the same time, he's doing some good work in a lot of ways, and and he's paying a price for it. I mean, you know, I, I don't think he's doing it. I don't think what he's doing. He's doing what he's doing right now for any selfish reasons because um, it would be a lot easier for him to just kind of keep his mouth shut and hang out in Hyannisport and whatever like that. Or he could easily ride that Kennedy name to a, a much a much a much different style of political campaign than than the one he's doing. For sure, and you know, there's no need for him to even really be in politics at all. I mean, he's he's got more generational family wealth than he could probably ever spend. I mean, you know, there's there's I don't see what's in it for him other than that he has some principles, you know? And, um, so yeah, there's all kinds of things. Kennedy started off as a, um, you know, he was a a congressman and then a Senator. I think he first got elected to Congress in the late forties. He came back, you know, fairly young guy, world war II hero. And this was back when you didn't have to be 80 years old to get elected to high political office. Um, so, you know, fairly young guy getting elected to the house of representatives. And then after I think a couple terms or so, uh, got elected to the Senate. 
and then you know got the Democratic nomination in, in 1960 and won a very close and you know somewhat questionable election over then Vice President uh, Richard Nixon and Kennedy. At the time he ran for president and got elected, he was basically a very typical of, excuse me, that era, um, Cold War, um, somewhat liberal. I mean, by today's standards, he's pretty conservative, but, you know, by the standards of back then, fairly liberal on domestic policy. Um, but on foreign policy, he was pretty, he was a pretty standard Cold War hawk Democrat of that era. And a lot of times, right-wingers who, who don't know their history and don't realize the degree to which the American right itself has been molded and manipulated by the CIA and others, um, they, they forget that it, it was the Democrats primarily who kind of created the Cold War as a thing. I mean, it was Harry Truman who um, really kind of got the Cold War going, uh, who launched the first major military intervention of the Cold War in Korea. Um, Harry Truman, who who um, presided over the creation of the CIA and, and some other important things that kind of set up the architecture of the Cold War national security state, which then, you know, is still with us today, just way bigger and more powerful. And so Kennedy was kind of typical of that. And, and you can go back and look at his um, speeches and debates from the 1960 campaign. Very often on foreign policy, he was criticizing the Eisenhower administration from the right. He was saying, like, we're not, you know, being being tough enough and proactive enough um, in, in the Cold War. And so he one thing though that that I've come to conclude. So um just just for the listeners, I know I mentioned it it to you um in our in our you know email exchanges and whatnot, but I'm gonna be doing a probably three-part we'll see, a uh, mini-series on kind of my take on the Kennedy assassination. And it's going to be um, at, at least the first episode, we'll see what I can do, um, at least the first episode is going to come out this November, the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. And um, this is actually coming out of that Indiegogo campaign I mentioned that bought me my freedom. Um, I, I have, and it, by the way, it's still active. If anybody, um, you know, I know times are tight for a lot of people, certainly are for me right now. Uh, but anybody who's got some extra cash lying around and you know thinks what I'm doing is valuable, you can still throw money at my Indiegogo campaign. It's still live since it met its original goal by the original deadline. And one of the things that you can do if you uh, give me an, a big enough contribution is you can commission a custom episode, like you pick the topic and I make the episode, um, or even a miniseries if, if you chip in enough. And um, one of the awesome people who chipped in a good chunk of change for me um, to do this full time the the topic he, he most of the people who did this they they would send me like several topics potentially and say like hey you pick the one out of these that you think is best and and this one one guy um who chipped in a lot he sent me a little list of of several topics and one of them was the kennedy assassination and um that's the one i picked out of the list he sent me so i was like yeah you know i've kind of mentioned it in passing in various episodes of my show but i've never really drilled into it um and so anyway that's going to be at least starting this November. And um, so because of that, I've started to dig back more into the Kennedy assassination. It's been been years since I kind of went on a kick of reading a bunch of books on that and digging into it. Now I'm rereading some of the stuff I read like a decade ago, and then I'm also reading some stuff I had never read before related to it. And um, really I'm starting to, to um, kind of conclude that like for all of his many things, 
flaws and faults and yeah he was a he was a philanderer and you know all those things um one of john f kennedy's admirable qualities was that he was always curious about other people's point of view who disagreed with him like he was a genuinely open-minded guy i believe and so different from most of our current politicians and so he would change his mind on an issue if if somebody made a made a good point to him or if he learned new information he didn't know before he would change his mind and he was always open to to reevaluating his positions and and i i kind of see a bit of that in in rfk i think you know i don't I certainly don't you know 100% trust him or whatever like that but at the same time he seems to have that quality too where he's very open to having civil conversations he goes on right wing podcasts and shows and whatever like that and kennedy was kind of that way and so he came in largely just, you know, buying into the whole Cold War narrative. And he started to get red-pilled pretty early on in his presidency, just a few months into it, with the Bay of Pigs, the Bay of Pigs operation, which, um, for those who don't know, um, this was, you know, most people know at least a, a little bit of it. But so uh, Castro took over in Cuba in uh, 1959. And um, this was largely blowback for America treating Cuba as an informal imperial possession uh, for almost 60 years since the Spanish-American War. So from the, the Spanish-American War, 1898 until 1959, you know, 61 years, I guess. And it was it wasn't just basically puppet governments of the, U, the U.S. and CIA at that point? Exactly. Well, th th yeah, Eventually I mean, the CIA, CIA wasn't yeah. created until the yeah. late 40s. Yeah, but um, basically that's what it was. It was sock puppet regime, right? And so um, the various governments of Cuba during that time period, you know, some were better or worse than others, but they were all, you know, kind of Hamid Karzai, but like nastier very often. And so the, the main American interests, you know, there were local Cuban oligarchs who had some pull with the government and whatever, but um, the um, American sugar companies took over Cuban sugar, like a lot of Cuban sugar growing. Um, and then... Yeah, not long after the Spanish-American War. And then um, really starting in the 1920s is when American tourism to Cuba became huge um, because travel to Cuba began to be affordable even for kind of middle-class Americans. And um, in the 20s, there was alcohol prohibition in the U.S., but not in Cuba. And so a lot of Americans in the 20s started going to Cuba. That Miami to Havana uh, boat, boat line must have been something. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, early on, it was more so Tampa because Miami... Mm. Um, but it didn't start to boom until a little bit later. But yeah, it, it, and so, you know, Cuba was sort of like the original Vegas in a lot of ways. And um, it was the American mafia, um, the, the kind of classic mafia that we think of, of the early to mid 20th century, you know, the, the mafia of characters like um, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, those sorts of guys, they came to control a lot of the tourism industry in Cuba. Like they, they owned most of the, the nice uh, resorts and casinos and brothels. And so it was like the original Vegas. And the, whoever the Cuban sock puppet government was at the time, they had to play ball with American corporations, you know, sugar, sugar companies, but also tropical fruit companies started to be a big thing. Um, and then also with the American mafia owning a lot of their facilities. And then also with the U.S. government, which um, one of the things that came out of the Spanish-American War was that treaty saying that the U.S. gets the basic Guantanamo and all that sort of stuff, uh, which gave the U.S. more leverage beyond just 
you know, owning a lot of Cuba's resources was the U.S. government had that giant military base there and um, was, uh, I think it was the, uh, the Platt Amendment passed after the Spanish-American War literally said, like, um, the U.S. government reserves the right to intervene in the affairs of Cuba whenever it deems it necessary for American interests, something like that. So this built up a lot of resentment amongst the Cuban population. Eventually, it came to a head with Castro's revolution. And um, in the latter days of the Eisenhower administration, the CIA, which keep in mind was only like a little bit over a decade old this time, um, the CIA came up with this plan. You had already started to have large numbers of Cubans fleeing to the United States um, within just a year or two of Castro taking over. And so the CIA had a huge operation um, in, in Miami um, and also in Tampa and some other places where there were you know, Cuban populations around the country. And they, they built a private army. They recruited anti-Castro Cuban exiles. And, you know, if they were fit military-aged males, uh, the CIA had their own secret training bases in places in Florida and Louisiana. And, um, you know, they're funneling American military hardware to these guys and whatever. And they developed this plan. The plan was, we're going to send in, you know, several thousand, I forget the exact number, maybe 5,000 at most, um, something like that. Cuban exiles trained by the CIA, equipped with American hardware, they're going to go overthrow Castro. Now, the people actually in charge of this plan were intelligent and realistic enough to know that this little private army by itself is not going to overthrow Castro's regime. Their real plan, which you know they didn't tell the president this, the, the reality was they believed they'd send in this Cuban exile army it would start fighting Castro's army, and then whoever was the president at the time would feel politically boxed in because of the Cold War narrative. Um, the the president would have would feel like he had no choice but to recognize the exile force as the new Cuban government, sending the whole might of the United States military to make it succeed. So you said this started uh, this started under Eisenhower, and what's interesting to me, you, you mentioned the CIA coming up with this. So it, this already kind of demonstrates that the CIA is operating not necessarily at the direction of a president, whether it's Eisenhower or JFK. They're just operating as their own thing. Um, so and yep. was the CIA essentially like that from, from its very impetus, where it once it set up, it became its own sort of beast and was doing its own thing to serve the purposes of whoever it may serve, various corporations or whatever interests it may serve? Yeah, well, it was always kind of um, the, the top guys running it, which were mostly guys who had been in the OSS, the World War II kind of precursor of the CIA, they a lot of them kind of always intended the CIA to just be able to do whatever the hell it wants and essentially be answerable to nobody um, and to infiltrate, which they did, um, pretty much every branch and agency of the U.S. government um, from very early on. And, and also to, media, to infiltrate media in various well. ways, the media. Yep, 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 exactly. And, and, and parts, at least, of academia, like there's all this stuff that 99% of people don't know, but it's completely documented. You know, it's not theory at all. Um, and so I, I will say this, Harry Truman, who I have all kinds of, of, of hate for, for many reasons, um, and he did preside over the creation of the CIA in 1947. It was part of a, a major piece of legislation called the National Security Act of 1947, which reorganized the military and also created the CIA, did a few other things. And um, Harry Truman, I'll give him his due, he had some misgivings about the CIA. Um, he, he kind of thought that like the operational side of it was only appropriate during an actual war, like World War II. 
he wanted the CIA, unless there was a real declared war, he wanted the CIA to primarily just be about information, to primarily just be to try to give the president as accurate of information about what's really going on around the world as they could. And only during an actual hot war would the CIA be out there like doing sabotage and assassinations and all that kind of stuff. But of course, a lot of the people in the CIA wanted to do that stuff all the time because that stuff is fun, that stuff is cool, it's sexy, whatever. And so um, Truman kept the CIA, I'll give him his due, he kept the CIA on a somewhat short leash while he was president. But Eisenhower, who I have a lot of good things to say, but one of the big negatives is Eisenhower is the guy who was persuaded to cut the CIA loose to just kind of start running wild mm. and start doing things like overthrowing governments, you know. Um, so under Eisenhower, they overthrew the government of Iran in 53. They overthrew the government of Guatemala in 54. They started getting involved in Congo. Um, the CIA just started going nuts, um, overthrowing governments and intervening in other countries, you know, internal affairs and stuff like that. And it's interesting too, because, you know, my, my prep for this show was watching the, rewatching the film JFK and Oliver Stone starts that film off with the, the famous, uh, you know, Eisenhower speech, or I don't know, maybe the movie is what made it more famous uh, uh, about the military industrial complex. So it's interesting that he finishes up warning the American public about this. And, you know, maybe just like anybody else, maybe he's a real human. Maybe he let them loose. And then maybe he started to see at the end, like, Oh shit, what, have, what do we got going here? Yeah, well, I think Eisenhower's decision to to give the CIA a, a freer reign, I think he had some good reasons for it because what one of the things I'll give Eisenhower credit for is he ended the Korean War in his first year as president. He actually, and he ran on that and he delivered on it, unlike a lot of other presidents that run on, I'm going to end this war and then they don't, you know. Um, and he ended the Korean War, got a ceasefire in his first year as president. And Eisenhower, you can even read not just the military-industrial complex speech, which everybody knows. There was a speech he gave, um, I believe, is also during his first year as president in 1953. And um, I think it's known as his Cross of Iron speech, something like that. But it's it, very early in his presidency, just a few months into it, he, he gave a speech where he basically said, um, if we keep spending on the Cold War like we are, we're going to destroy America's economy and standard of living and all this sort of stuff. And, and we need to figure out a way to defend ourselves but not destroy our economy in the meantime. And um, so him, him deciding to let the CIA have a little bit more free reign, and, and I think they, honestly, they, they went far beyond whatever, whatever he actually intended anyway. But um, it was partly because he was trying to figure out a way. He believed in the Cold War. Like he believed in, you know, containing communism. Uh, but he he was fiscally conservative in and really you know believed that we could destroy our way of life and standard of living if we spent too much on on things like the Korean War and just giant military you know conventional military forces. And so part of the reason he let the CIA loose was he was trying to economize hmm. and figure out cheaper, more efficient ways to do the Cold War. Interesting. Um, and and he put um, Alan Dulles in charge as head of the CIA, and, and this is what, like one of the worst things I think Eisenhower ever did. Um, Alan Dulles was a, um, uh, an OSS veteran from World War II and uh, came from a, a kind of blue-blooded American family. And um, he, had, he had a grandfather and an uncle who had been secretaries of state in previous eras. And um, by the way, one of them was secretary of state for Woodrow Wilson, but that's a whole other story. And... Uh, Dulles was one of these guys who very much wanted the CIA to be running around doing stuff all the time, overthrowing governments, assassinating world leaders, and, and so forth. And Eisenhower largely let him do that stuff. 
And so Alan Dulles, uh, Kennedy kept him on initially as the head of the CIA, as the director um, that he inherited from Eisenhower. And basically, Dulles and some of his, his henchmen, you know, Kennedy was still early 40s, you know, still... Like he had been in, in Congress and, and everything, but he didn't have that inside view of like how the Pentagon really worked and what the CIA was really up to, you know? And so he was kind of a rube initially, and they were able to play him into agreeing to green light the Bay of Pigs. And then, you know, everything went bad um, pretty quickly. Castro, for a variety of reasons, he was tipped off to what was coming. So he was actually really, really well prepared to, to fight these people. And pretty quickly, it was obvious that the Cuban exiles were really in trouble. And um, all Kennedy's, you know, CIA and military advisors were all saying, you know, send in the Marines, send in everything. And Kennedy, an example of him having an independent streak and be, being willing to reevaluate things, Kennedy kind of realized he had been manipulated into greenlighting this stupid idea and that he'd been played. And he decided, no, I'm going to cut my losses. We're not sending in any U.S. forces. These guys, you know, they're, we're not going to reinforce failure. So they essentially. essentially sent in a force that they knew would would take massive losses, but we're hoping to put him in this position where it's like, well, we got to take the side of these guys that are anti-communist because of the Cold War. So come on, what are you going to do? Let them all die? Yeah. It, it's sort of like a pro, something like a proactive tripwire. Mm. It kind of reminds me of some of the, the NATO forces and things that the U.S. has where it's like, oh yeah, you know, you got like 800... 800 American soldiers in, in, I don't know, Lithuania. It's like, that's not enough to do anything if, you know, Russia decided to send in a massive invasion or whatever. It's just a tripwire. It's just so that those guys are going to be sacrificial lambs so that then the U.S. military will go, oh my God, look, they not only did they invade our, our NATO ally, Lithuania, they slaughtered 800 American troops. Mm -hmm. Like, they're, they're there to die so that then there's more justification and sort of a Pearl Harbor, you know, narrative of, oh, we got to avenge these guys or whatever. So um, when Kennedy uh, decided to not back up the Bay of Pigs with conventional American forces, a lot of people in the CIA and the upper levels of the Pentagon went ballistic and started to see him as literally in their eyes a traitor, as like a too soft on communism. He's dangerous to have in the White House. And um, Kennedy, in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, he fired Alan Dulles and also um, his kind of second in command. I'm blanking on the guy's name. And so that caused a lot of bad blood with people in the CIA who were sort of like Dulles loyalists who were still there. And he kind of unwittingly then put in charge a guy named uh, Richard Helms, who was big time Dulles loyalist, but Kennedy, I don't think, realized that. And so that started it. And then, um, you know, I'll try and try and run through the kind of like chain of events that I believe establishes, because when you're looking at, at, a, at a crime, you look for means, motive, and opportunity, right? And so, you know, at least established motive here. So they were angry that he didn't overthrow Castro in 61. Then in 62, you had the, um, the Bay of Pigs, oh, sorry, Bay of Pigs, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 62 where the Soviets put in, you know, medium-range nuclear missiles. Kennedy put in place a naval blockade, but didn't, you know, preemptively start World War III, thank God. Um, but believe it or not, a lot of, again, top people in the CIA and the Pentagon, they thought that Kennedy should have 
as soon as he discovered the missiles in Cuba, should have just you know sent in everything and, and essentially launched World War III. And um, thankfully, he didn't because those missiles were actually operational, which the U.S. intelligence agencies didn't know at the time. They thought the missiles weren't yet ready to go. And aside from that, the, the Soviets also had their own, you know, um, long-range ICBMs. and So they were going to bomb a bunch of nukes with conventional weapons, which I imagine would have not been pretty. I mean, it, it might have created a dirty bomb situation sort of in Cuba. I don't, I'm not enough of an expert on the mechanics of, of how that would have played out, but it would have made it very likely the Soviets might have re- retaliated because Cuba was their ally. You know, Castro was their, their ally. Um, you know, in the same way that, like, the, the you know, president of South Vietnam at the time was, was an American ally. So they were pissed that Kennedy managed to work out a deal and this is, this is, by the way, um, what, if it hadn't worked out, the Warhawks would have called appeasement, right? They only call it appeasement when it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, they, they saw it as appeasement at the time. A lot of his, his own, like, generals and, and, you know, top people in the CIA, they saw this as appeasement, as caving. But it, it wasn't. It was just a deal. It was like, hey, we'll do this, we'll do that. You take the missiles out of Cuba, right? And we don't all die. Um, and, yeah, they actually thought this was horrible that Kennedy had solved the Cuban Missile Crisis without war. Um, and things continued. Um, Operation Northwoods, which is now kind of notorious, but believe it or not, was top secret. The American people didn't know about it until it was exposed in the late 90s. Um, Operation Northwoods was this, this harebrained plan dreamed up by some CIA and Pentagon people, signed off on by then uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Lyme, Lyman Lemnitzer. And these days, you can Google up the original PDFs of the original documents and look at them. You know, but these were secret until the late '90s, and basically, it was a series of of kind of proposals to potentially um, launch false flags attack false flag attacks against the U.S. and its and its forces, including potentially the Guantanamo military base, uh, to blame it on on Castro, even though the CIA or the Pentagon or both would would actually have been behind it, and then use that as the justification to um, you know go to war against Castro and and. Kennedy, it made it through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Man, they really wanted to uh, get that Vegas Cuba back. <laughs> I mean. Oh, oh, they did, they did, yeah. And um, and and Kennedy, and, and even his Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, they saw this and they were like, "What in the hell are you doing? Like, this is insane. We're not going to start a, we're not going to launch a false flag attack against ourselves to start World War III with Cuba. Like, this is just madness." And again, they were going to kill real Americans here, correct? Or was it not? Was it? Or they were maybe going to have dummy people that they said were killing. Real Americans. Um, yeah, I, I, it's been a while since I read over the exact you know wording of the documents because basically the the documents they throw out like multiple proposals. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, they, they don't advocate like any one. Like let's do this. They're like, all right, we could do this. We could do that. We gotcha. could do this. Kill real people. We could kill fake people. A uh, couple yeah. different ways. We could yeah, kill. yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I think some of them involve killing real people, and some of them involve. One of them that's really interesting is they actually talk about. Um, faking an air airline hijacking to blame on on uh, Castro and I think it's in there that they talk about like faking it and using a drone or something like like it's really kind of bizarre in the 60s even which is interesting and I think how a lot of people first learned about Northwoods at least that's the first time I heard of it was in the documentary Loose Change where they bring it up and that that has its own flaws that we can you know, there's many episodes that can be done on that yeah. but there certainly were true about the fact that there was a plot by the CIA to literally do 9-11 minus the flying at airplanes, but to, hi- to stage hijacked airplanes. Yeah, I mean, it certainly, you know, shows that people who get to very high levels in the military and intelligence world, some of them are, I believe, like just flat out psychopaths. 
And there, it shows that some percentage of them are quite comfortable with launching a false flag attack to create an unnecessary war and, and blame the attack on somebody else. Like they, they will do it. And um, I, I happen to, by the way, um, believe that uh, the blowing up of the USS Maine in 1898 to precipitate the Spanish-American War, I, I believe that was a false flag. Um, and I've, I've actually done an episode putting together, you know, a pretty strong circumstantial case that I think points in that direction. Um, but that's a whole... You, you can draw a straight line from, from the Maine right through to Kennedy with the whole Cuba, the Spanish-American War in Cuba. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty straight 100-year line there. Yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of ways, it certainly is. It's, it's how the American empire operates. So, you know, again, when, when Kennedy just flat out, you know, nixed the, the Northwoods idea, again, a lot of people, their feathers were ruffled. They, they're saying, oh, he's, he's, he's at, at, at best, he's way too soft on communism. At worst, he might actually be some sort of a traitor, you know. And he, he was, we now know, a lot of this was totally secret at the time, you know, unbeknownst to the public, but so many uh, things have come out since then. We now know that he was, even after he um, communicated with the Soviet leader uh, Khrushchev to defuse the Cuban Missile Crisis, he continued to secretly have direct correspondence with Khrushchev. Um, and, and really, it seems like the Cuban Missile Crisis really kind of rattled both Kennedy and Khrushchev. Mm. And both of them were like, whoa, that came too close. You know, we don't want to die too. You know, we don't want the entire world right. to blow up. That's not good for anybody, you know, even if you're the dictator of the Soviet Union. And so, um, you know, they they were... Did, did Khrushchev have like his own sort of CIA of sorts? I mean, do you think they were both manipulated exactly. into this situation to try to box them both in, in, in whatever way for reasons on both sides? That's a very, very good point, yes. And that's something that Americans often don't realize is that like, even regimes that appear to us to be very authoritarian or even dictatorships, they still have their own internal politics. Like, mm -hmm. There's no such thing as a regime where literally one guy can just do whatever the hell he wants to. You know, Even North Korea, uh, there's limits. You know, Where if the North Korean leader started, for example, to normalize things too fast— um, and open the country up and roll back the he could, he would very likely get overthrown and killed by his own you know secret police or or their version of the CIA or right. the FBI because their lifestyle is based on the fact that there's a dictatorship and that they're not one of the people that are on the short end of the stick exactly and there really seems to have been some empathy um, I've I've been reading a lot of excerpts from the secret correspondence between Kennedy and Khrushchev there really seems to have been some empathy where like they kind of understood the predicament the other was in. You know, they were sort of like, yeah, I can't move too fast on trying to make a more lasting peace because I've got my own generals, my own military industrial complex. You know, like, yeah, the Soviets, they weren't, they weren't capitalists, so they didn't have like, you know, Lockheed as a for-profit military uh, manufacturer, but they had their own version of it. You know, the guys who ran their tank factories right, and right. wanted to keep business going and whatever. And so, you know, they were trying as kind of, Quietly and and um, you know incrementally as they could, they were trying to to establish, possibly even end the Cold War in the way that like Reagan and Gorbachev sort of did a couple decades later. Um, and then um, in in some ways, it seems like the straw that broke the camel's back might have been that Kennedy was also around this time as he was questioning everything about the Cold War. He was also, by the way, secretly trying to normalize relations with Castro. He was sending you know, kind of private, secret um, envoys to try and establish better relations with Castro even. 
Um, and, and, you know, the public, the American public had no idea about this, but if you were a higher up in the Pentagon or, or at Langley, you, you would have known some of this. You would have heard things. You would have known that Kennedy was at least doing some stuff like that. And um, it seems like probably what was the straw that broke the camel's back that, that made them decide he needs to go is um, that he really was starting to turn against American involvement in Vietnam. Um, that he was really starting to doubt that that was a good idea, that that was ever going to accomplish anything good. And that was before it was a, a full-on war at that point, or considered one. There was action of sorts. There was the, you know, intelligence was involved, but it hadn't become the Vietnam War per se at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. There was not a huge American military footprint there yet. Uh, the American military personnel, um, when when Kennedy took over as president, I believe there were under a thousand American military in South Vietnam. Um, there were probably a whole bunch more, you know, unofficial CIA. Uh, we know that a lot of even like the uh, AID workers, you know, the those sorts of people were often CIA, you know, undercover people. Um, so there's tons of CIA in South Vietnam, but there wasn't a huge conventional American military presence. Kennedy initially increased it early on in his presidency to, um, I forget, maybe like 5,000 or something. Um, but then he started to have have doubts about everything having to do with that. And um, so th this is all, the, the Gulf of Tonkin and all that doesn't happen until Kennedy's out of the picture, I think, on purpose. But um, he started to have his doubts that this was a good idea. He started to think like, look, we need to just kind of turn it over to the South Vietnamese. And if they can't stand on their own two feet and, and fend off the communists in the North, there's nothing we can do to salvage the situation. We shouldn't sacrifice tons of American lives. It's not going to be till after Kennedy's been gone for like a year or two that you start to get hundreds of thousands of American uh, military on the ground in, in Vietnam, and it turns into what it turns into. Um, but by certainly by the last year of his life, if not even starting a little bit earlier, he started to have real second thoughts about that. And um, again, a lot of this stuff was secret at the time, but now we can look. Like he was, you know, doing things like asking he he wanted to get reelected first because he kind of thought well you know if i start to to disengage from vietnam and make peace with khrushchev and all this sort of stuff um you know i'm not going to be able to do all this sort all these sorts of things real fast like with even within just a year or two it's going to take time and uh 1964 he would be running for reelection so his strategy was we now know all right i'm going to you know publicly play it kind of cool, like I'm still a, basically a cold warrior. I'm going to get reelected in 64. Then, you know, I'm in my second term. I can't run for a third term. Then I can really kind of do what I want to do. And so he was asking um, his Secretary of Defense and some of his top generals to draw up a plan to get out of Vietnam completely by, I think, the end of 1965. And to a lot of people in the Pentagon and the CIA, that was like a bridge too far. It's like, this is, you know, appeasing Hitler at Munich kind of a thing. And uh, he's got to go. So um, I, I genuinely believe that ultimately it was, it was primarily the CIA uh, with involvement of maybe some other elements of, from the Pentagon, possibly with a supporting role being played by, by elements of the American mafia, by the way, which U.S. intelligence had been working with since at least World War II in various ways. Because the mafia, again, as you kind of indicated earlier, they wanted Cuba open back up too. They wanted their Vegas back, definitely. Yeah, yeah, they they were pissed at they hated Kennedy for a variety of reasons, partly because um when Kennedy was a senator, he actually um was he and and his brother kind of like working for him, uh really went after the mafia and a lot like investigated the mafia's involvement in unions and things like this. Mm -hmm. So the the mafia already didn't really like Kennedy. 
And um, then they were very much in agreement with the CIA. Like they want to cast her out of the picture so they can get their casinos back and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I genuinely believe that ultimately that's, it was essentially what we would call the deep state in today's terms that, that took Kennedy out, that decided he's got to go. And they had already developed their skill set. They had already overthrown governments all over the world, assassinated foreign leaders. They, they had helped to assassinate um, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, a number of other foreign leaders and things. So it's like, why would you assume that their skill set they've been honing mm. of overthrowing governments and making it look like they didn't do it why would you assume that there's this magical, that these same psychopaths really care that the laws say they're not supposed to do that sort of thing here, you know? It's the it'll never happen here uh, fallacy, you could say. Yeah, yeah, there's a magical force field, you know? And um, I, I, when I was a little kid, of course, I was told the, the standard version of, you know, oh, Lee Harvey Oswald, this lone nut did it, whatever. But anyway, the, um, a few of the things that first started to make me think because i was sort of told the same thing everybody's told when you're when you're growing up it's like yeah lee harvey oswald did it the warren commission proved it you know the magic bullet is obviously answers everything and um yeah there's a handful of kooks that think that the official story isn't right but they're crazy people who wear tinfoil hats and probably believe in shape-shifting aliens or something um even though by the way for a very long time polls have shown consistently that a strong majority of Americans don't believe the Warren Commission is telling the whole story or even the truth at all. Um, but a few of the, the first things that made me start to go, hmm, and then I started to dig into things more eventually. Um, one is the, the shooting itself, right? It, it, um, you know, if, if you look at how they say that the actual shooting went down, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't add up. I'm... You know, I, I'm I'm not a veteran or or anything like that, but uh, but I'm a guy who who grew up shooting, and I have done um, some private sector, you know, tactical training and and some long range rifle shooting and things like this. And um, yeah, there's a whole lot of things about the about the supposed assassination story that don't don't add up. Um, so that was one thing that you know, when I really kind of looked into the details of that, I was like, I don't think this guy did that with that rifle from that spot. Um, but certainly not not alone. Maybe, maybe he fired some shots, but but there had to have been someone else who fired at least some of the shots that we know. Yeah, Oswald. Whenever we, I did a show not too long ago with a uh, Jose Galison about um, about OKC and Timothy McVeigh, and and doing that show not long before I watched JFK, it really blew me away. So many of the parallels between Timothy McVeigh. And um and Lee Harvey Oswald just just their their demeanor their the story around them they're you know they they were in the military then they kind of went and did some weird stuff we're not sure and, and then they got involved in some movements like the the storyline is is practically the same and what's really interesting about Oswald I mean he came out right away and said I'm a patsy like I didn't do this and it's interesting too because because he has a military background and he had, he was in intelligence in some way shape or form um to use the term patsy too for him to use that term kind of just shows what he knows about that, about assassinations and that kind of process anyway. So it was interesting, you know, I, I don't know if he was one of the people involved and then said, I'm a patsy, or if he just realized after the fact that he was set up, but um, it's clear that he had knowledge of how this thing goes down either. This kind of thing can go down either way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he may not have fully understood all of what was happening until, you know, the, the shooting happened. And then he was like, Oh, <laughs> it's even worse than I thought kind of thing. But, but um yeah, that that's another that was another kind of early red flag that made me go, 
I don't think the official story is the truth, uh, is so the shooting itself, then there's Oswald and his background. That's another one where as soon as you start to look into that in any detail, it is crazy, his, his story. Um, you know, all these sorts of things. I mean, um, even the JFK movie can only kind of scratch the surface, you know, because of time. Uh, but, you know, the fact that this guy is, he's a U.S. Marine, he, he gets some involvement in intelligence, probably had some sort of connection and maybe training from ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, who's um, listeners of my show, longtime listeners may know is one of kind of like the boogeymen to me. Um, you know, everybody knows about CIA and they, you know, a lot of the, the stories about them, bad ones are, are quite true. But um, ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, is often overlooked, but is, I think, also very, a very important part of that sort of world. And much older than the CIA, by the way, about 75 years, I think, older than the CIA. It's America's oldest intelligence agency. Do you think they get annoyed when the CIA gets all the credit for all the dastardly works out there? They're like, hey, guys, you know, we're over here doing some nasty stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes. Although I, I think they often... A lot of times these agencies have rivalries with each other. I sort of get the impression, and, and maybe I'm wrong, I sort of get the impression that like, like CIA and FBI will often kind of like quarrel with each other. Um, like they're both bad, but they're kind of, you know, fighting over who gets to have, you know, like turf wars kind of thing. Um, it seems like CIA and um, ONI have always gotten along pretty well, I think. Um, so yeah, it might not, might not be too bad. I, I think ONI likes having a lower profile. I think they like that most people don't even know that they exist, you know. Um, but like Oswald's got this crazy background where he's a, he's a U.S. Marine. Um, he's he's over in Okinawa, really tapped into some top secret stuff. He was like at a base. He was a radio operator, but like a secret radio operator who who was like connected to the U two project, which was super duper secret at the time. Um, you know, he, he was fluent in Russian. He had all this like he was not a typical Marine in terms of just like marching around in the mud or whatever. He he had all this. Um, valuable clandestine knowledge. And then he defects eventually to the Soviet Union after he gets out of the military, um, renounces his citizenship. I think he, he never officially did, but he said he was going to. Um, goes to the Soviet Union, lives there for, I forget exactly how long, a year or two at least, marries a Russian woman, works at like a radio factory in Min Minsk, um, eventually comes back to America, brings his Russian bride with him, and here's a guy who very openly said, I'm defecting to the Soviet Union. And he even announced when he was leaving that like, he was going to share all of his secret knowledge with them and whatever. And yet, when this guy comes to get back in the United States, no problem. No problem. In fact, it seems like people were greasing the wheels for it. Like He got in easier than you know, just a regular run-of-the-mill Joe businessman coming to this country who's saying, like, I love America. I just want to live here. He's like... The guy who just a year or two ago was like, ah, I'm a communist. I'm going to go give the Soviets my secrets. And he comes back in, no problem. Gets, it, gets back in, no problem. Um, and then, you know, the details of his life once he was back in is bizarre. He's got connections to these sort of like right-wing Russians um, in, 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 that were in the, like the Dallas community at the time, um, which is bizarre. If he's supposedly this left-wing commie, why are right-wing Russian exiles, who many of whom were, totally CIA connected. Why are they helping him and being his buddy and like helping him get a job and helping him find a place? Like the whole thing is just insane. Um, and so anyway, and then there's a whole bunch more of, of things about his background and things he supposedly did that, that don't add up. You can find instances where he's acting like he is a communist, where he's 
um, like getting into a fight in New Orleans with with anti Castro right. Cuban exiles because he's like protesting in favor of Castro. And yet, there's other times where you see him palling around with right wingers and Cuban exile, you know, um, people. And so, like, who, who the hell is he really? Right. I mean that that lack of consistency is is only lends more credence, I think, to the fact that he was probably an intelligence asset of some kind, which brings it back to the loop. Well, then, okay, is he an intelligence asset that was sent to kill JFK and then just said the Patsy thing because he doesn't want to be you know blamed for it, or is was he really set up with things like okay, we're going to send you to Russia? Maybe he's told a different thing than it is, and he's set up with this sort of strange background uh, to set him up as the crazy lone assassin. It's, it's hard to really say. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things that it seems like that is often done whenever they're running a, a secret operation, it seems like they, they deliberately try to make it as confusing as possible. Like they, they really try to have as many like smoke and mirrors and, you know. Again, very similar to McVeigh. Like you can read such contradictory things about him that you, it just makes you want to question the whole thing. And maybe that's an intentional. Exactly. And so you end up with like this multi-layered onion you know this sort of like layers of limited hangouts mm. where even if you peel one thing but then you're just at another level of cover story right. you know um and and yeah it's i think it it's often designed to just be like kind of chaotic and whatever so that if people ever do even get their hands on some of the documents and then and then when kooky conspiracy people look into it and they point some things out then it gives enough ammunition for people to say but well yeah but if he was that then why would he fight the anti-castro people why would he be here because because none of it makes sense you know because yeah and and also if if can if um uh, oswald actually was just a commie loving you know commie sympathizer or whatever why of all people would he try to kill Kennedy, the guy who, you know, yeah, he was still publicly acting the part of a Cold War hawk, but at the same time, he was the guy who had, you know, peacefully diffused the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was the guy who was, you know, he, he kind of played it close to his vest, but Kennedy was starting to make even some public statements that were kind of radical about trying to find real peace. He made a, he did a famous speech, I think only about a month before he was killed at American University that, it's quite radical where he talks about like making a real peace and essentially ending the cold war and, and rolling back the military industrial complex and everything. And so like, if you were a, a commie sympathizer who, who didn't want the U S to be belligerent to the Soviet union, why would you kill Kennedy of all people? Right. That never made sense to me in the, in the, the standard storyline that that way it's sold anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the last thing I'll say is, as far as, you know, what, what were big kind of early on things that made me, start to get red-pilled on, on the JFK assassination um, is after the fact, the Warren Commission. Um, as soon as you start to dig into any details about the Warren Commission, who was on it, what they really were up to, who they talked to, often more importantly, who they didn't talk to but should have if they were doing an honest investigation, right? Um, as soon as you start to dig, dig into the Warren Commission, it all looks just fishy as hell. I mean, even out of the gate, who... When the Warren Commission is set up very quickly in the after, it, and it seems like they were basically told, like, "Hey, just just come up with a story as fast as possible and open and shut and done," you know. And look at some of the people on it too. Alan Dulles, the aforementioned, exactly. I mean, who was just deposed by Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, that that was one of the biggest ones when I when I I think I was just um, I got to fly into that know, guy's airport years. next week. You know, it's like I don't even want to. I don't yeah, even want to walk yeah. through that building. Well, well, it's actually named after his brother. Oh, okay, think, well, probably uh, probably John just Foster as bad though. Dulles, who, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a team under Eisenhower. Dulles was running CIA, and John Foster Dulles, his big brother, was Secretary of State. 
And they were, you know, collab. So the State Department and CIA were like even more than usual in lockstep during those years. Um, but yeah, th that was, even just that was a big one. I think it was probably like one of the early books that I read that was either a biography of Alan Dulles or a history of the early CIA or whatever. And I see, yeah, and then, uh, you know, after uh, Kennedy got killed, uh, Alan Dulles was made one of, the, one of the heads of the Warren Commission. I was like, wait, what? Because by that point, I already knew that um, there was a lot of bad blood there, that Kennedy fired him in, in disgrace after the Bay of Pigs, and that Dulles and all of his buddies bore a huge grudge over that. Why? And, and Lyndon Johnson, who then was president after Kennedy was shot, Lyndon Johnson knew all this. Why would he make Alan Dulles the head, of, or one of the heads of the Warren Commission, right, one of the commissioners, if the goal of the Warren Commission was just genuinely to try and investigate as fairly and honestly as possible. Um, a guy who was like an arch enemy of the guy who was killed, right? It makes no sense. It's like if, if I had a feud with one of my neighbors that was like really bitter and there was like some bad blood and some, even some violence and whatever, and then um, I, I get uh, killed under shady circumstances and, and that neighbor who I've been feuding with is made like the head of the investigation into how I died and what happened. Mm, like, right, right. wouldn't anybody look at that and go, that is just fishy as all get out. Right. Like, there's no way that this, this is on the up and up, you know. So, yeah, those are just some of the some of the big things that I think would make an honest person go, hmm. And and I have to say, in in um in just the last few years, I've really I've always thought the Kennedy assassination was important, but I've just in in the last few years really started to think it's even more important than I than I thought. Um, particularly watching things like Russia Gate and um. You know, the, the Ukraine war and a lot of the deep state going after Trump. And again, I'm no Trump fan. I'm, I'm less of a fan of Trump in many ways than I am of JFK. Um, but, but that doesn't mean, you know, that I think that the, the deep state didn't go after him and didn't, you know, do everything they could to try and destroy him and his presidency. And so in, in many ways, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think they stopped using assassinate. Isn't it weird that there haven't been that I can think of like almost any high profile political assassinations in this country since like the seventies. Isn't that a little weird? It used to be all the time, right? The closest thing is that um, there was that uh, baseball stadium shooting a few years ago, you know, the baseball game shooting, you know, so have some low level, I mean, not low level, whatever, a congressman or what have you. And then the, uh, what that Gifford Senator, I think that's like the, uh, neither of which were successful, but they're, they're, they were events. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the last like close one I could think of that didn't even succeed, but came close was um, uh, John Hinckley, John Hinckley Jr. shooting Reagan, um, and that's a whole nother can of worms that's fishy as all get out. Speaking of which, CJ, I think we'll 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 hop into the you know do a little smoke filled room here in a second, get a little weird. But I'm already thinking maybe maybe because we this episode was really really laid a lot of the background, a lot of the background for why and what certain interests would want to see Kennedy killed. But there's a lot more aspects of this, and I think this might be worthy of maybe a part two, maybe closer to uh, you know maybe maybe in November once you've done those episodes and have dug even deeper and, and fleshed out your thoughts. So I think there's a lot a lot of directions we can still go in. So maybe we'll get a taste of that in the smoke filled room. But uh, I'd be I'd be down for a part two uh, if you are in this because there's a lot to go into. Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. I could I could rattle on um, for <laughs> for another hour, no problem. Great. Well, uh, CJ. Until then, um, why don't you just tell everybody how they can find the Dangerous History podcast? So if they want, they can hear you rattle on about a number of subjects. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So um, 
you know, just whatever app or venue you prefer to use to listen to audio podcasts, just search for Dangerous History and you should find it. And um, you can also just put in dangerousherystorypodcast.com into your web browser and that'll take you to my homepage. But I know most people don't listen to podcasts that way anymore. Um, but yeah, just search for Dangerous History Podcast and you'll find it. And I've covered all kinds of things over the years, everything from the American Revolution to Civil War. I'm still in the midst of a multi-year project of a deep dive dissection of the life and career of Woodrow Wilson, who still, in my opinion, is the worst president so far uh, in American As history. As you named although, him on a Lions Liberty episode about the worst presidents of all time. Absolutely. There's our, there's our Joe Biden back. seems determined to give him a run for his <laughs> money, gonna, or at least Joe Biden's handlers, right? The people b- pulling the strings. But He's going to give it a shot. But CJ, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you in a minute in the Smoke-Filled Room. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with CJ Kilmer. And as we often do, we went a little bit deeper in the smoke-filled room and we got CJ's thoughts on something that really did start with JFK. He was the first one to declare that the United States would be going to the moon. So I do get CJ Kilmer's thoughts on the moon landing. So stay tuned for that in the smoke-filled room. Smoke-filled room being a part of the extended version of these episodes, all of which are available for supporters on Rockfin, where you get access to a ton of creators, including myself, uh, guys like Sam Tripoli, Isaac Weisop, Jay Dyer, Courtney Turner, so many great creators over there on Rockfin. Uh, I only named a few there. Uh, that's a great way to support the show and get access to a bunch of different creators. Uh, if you just want to support me directly, patreon.com slash Show. You can also go to Subscribestar, get yourself a free trial. Lots of options for you. You can find them all over at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. My friends, I will see you next week. But in case I don't, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Mm-hmm.